Good day. This is Michael Muth of Going Global International Interviews. Today we're speaking with Bob Meltzer, the president and CEO of Visa Now at visanow.com. Uh, we're talking with Bob about the immigration of technology workers. If you'd like to see an edited transcript of this interview, they're available at intlalliances.com and midwestbusiness.com. As an alternative to, um, let's say, as an immigration services provider and an alternative to a traditional law firm, VisaNow processes the applications online from beginning to end. From an immigration management perspective, there are, you could break down that into four areas, I think. One is application. And as far as the applications go, this is a, you know, immigration applications is a form and document driven, you know, type of a practice. So the online, the internet really affords a lot of efficiencies there. The second thing would be the question. If the applications are pending, both the, uh, let's say the, the uh, beneficiary and the sponsor, and you can, I can tell you a little bit more about that. Sponsor might be, for on an employment base, the employer or an HR uh, professional, you know, working for the employer, mm -hmm. uh, will have questions. Mm -hmm. So we facilitate the questions online. We get them all answered online, and by doing it that way, we respond very quickly. And then questions about the process, the immigration, uh, individual questions. I'm in the middle of my application. I'm about to. I have to go back to India for my brother's wedding. What do I do? How long will I be waiting for this? Do I need to send you any more information? All kinds of questions that have to do with the individual might have, having to do with the process, the law, or um, you know, any of the procedures. HR might have some questions too regarding the potential eligibility of a candidate. You know, so we facilitate those questions online. Again, by doing it online, rather than relying on the telephone, which is you know what the Immigration law practice, of course, relies on. We answer much faster, and uh, uh, I'd say the uh, third area would be uh, management of deadlines. You know, it's a very deadline-sensitive type of practice too. You've got deadlines for filing. You've got visa expirations. So. This can be done easily online. You keep track of everything online and give access to the clients, you know, 24-7 to find out, you know, explorations, things like that. And then the last thing would be strategy. Okay, strategy would be an overall immigration picture, and we facilitate that through those questions and answers also. And then if need be, if it's, if it's you know, extremely, like, um, let's say, uh, uh, difficult or complex, Sometimes we even go offline for that. So we offer the same thing that the traditional practice did, but because we leverage the online efficiency, we can um, 
uh, actually respond much faster, give much more access to information, and save the user a lot of time. So it sounds like primarily the advantage is moving online. <coughs> um, are there any other new technology benefits that you're working with? You know, alerting people, you know, wirelessly on their cell phones, there's a mm-hmm. documents that come in there, or things like that. Yeah, every year we go through a bill. You know, and we decide what are we going to do this year to move along to keep it far ahead, state of the art. And um, uh, recently, what we've done in this build is to identify an individual and their whole, let's say, family's application. So they come into the account and they see everybody there. They see that every, every, you know, their their spouse and children there, and so they can easily access all the information having to do with their entire family. And that was the 2007 uh, enhancement. As far as the, tech, the push technology, um, we push out certain information, you know, at this point, and uh, we push it out to the um, the uh, obviously information goes into the accounts, but we also push some information that we can push out into the email. Okay. Okay. Yeah, and I believe you said that there are certain parts of your technology that is patented. Yeah. What can you patent here? Yeah, actually, um, the patent, we were able to get the patent a couple of years ago, and it's a business process patent, and it includes um, four basic elements. One is a retainer agreement. Mm -hmm. One is the questionnaire interface, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, drawing data Mm -hmm. and then populating forms, you know, and... uh, the third thing is the query interface, which I described where the clients and, their, and the uh, candidates ask questions and get answers posted in a secure area. And the fourth thing, the fourth uh, element to it is the database itself. Now, this is this was approved uh, a couple of years ago as an entitled network-based legal system. Now, it's not just limited to immigration. So we see it as fairly broad actually reach the patent, you know, has pretty broad protection. Um, you know, we're, we're still identifying, you know, what uses we can make and what protections we can gain from it. So. Okay. And getting your website, it looks like you still deal with FedExing a lot of stuff. Are digital signatures not valid for online kind of things? You still need to handle a lot of paper. Yeah, that's a good question. It's one of those things where we're going to be able to advance the technology as fast as the government will let us also. And at this point, the government still requires that we submit evidence in paper format. So although we deal with the client completely online, at the very end of it, we package it up here, we fax it to the government in paper. Oh, it's it's really, you know, um, a, a huge waste. We talk to them all the time. You know about this. They had tried to create an online technology, mm-hmm. but excuse me, but they still require the evidence in paper form. So you can file the application online, but you still have to send in the evidence, which doesn't really help. Mm-hmm. So we asked the clients, "Do you want us to file online? Because it'll give us a receipt faster. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really make the process go faster, so no one opts for that. You know. So they. So so. Uh, and then the other thing is. When we get the final approval, we don't want the client to wait for that. So we fax that. We overnight that to them. So they have the approval document. The approval document is that, you know, cars will end up in the passport that shows that they have the status. They can travel with it. And even with some people, 
we're down for the day, you know, where they actually have to have it. So we use the FedEx for that, but not the preparation of the application. It's all done online. And yes, we can capture the signature. I'm trying to find that. Yeah. Um, so tell me specifically about your customers. Do you help Americans get visas elsewhere, or do you help foreigners get visas here in the U.S. or both? Yeah. Well, what we do uh, strictly is U.S. immigration applications. Okay, so that's foreigners coming into the U.S. And that was really it. What what was really behind Visa Now was a new way to deliver U.S. legal services, okay? And in that, immigration, again, because it was such a great candidate because it's so, you know, foreign documents, data intensive. So um, we focus on U.S. law, U.S. immigration law, which is foreign uh, 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 visitors coming to the U.S. Now, we are... Now working with a partner that can do U.S. U.S. citizens going overseas. Okay, what we've been looking for for years is somebody who does that in the same way that we do. There's finally somebody that's starting to do it. We think we're going to be able to help them along the way, um, but it's a much different type of a business than what we do because we handle U.S. immigration law. You know, we provide that service. Getting a visa to go outside the U.S. is really it's different. It's a lot easier. So, in other words, it doesn't sound like you deal with inter-country visas. In other words, visas for foreigners looking in another country. No, that would be the same thing. That would be the same kind of service as what people refer to as outbound. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I guess just to, to clarify your testimony, for Chicago-based company, are most of your customers based in and around Chicago or the Midwest or the United States? Yeah, it's interesting because uh, most of our customers are not Chicago, you know, and uh, we think there's some reasons for that. I mean, most of the clients that we have are, are um, you know, they have to be a little on the progressive side. And, you know, the Chicago businesses, you know, we found can tend to be a little more conservative than the Midwest. And this is a, you know, this is a, <laughs> a new paradigm, you know, to actually have your legal service delivered online. You know, it's, it's completely different. So, um, in the beginning, all of our clients came from Silicon Valley. They'd call up and say, wow, finally, this is fantastic. You know, this is such a painful, you know, uh, a, you know, procedure, operation, process. We were waiting for somebody to put this online in order to make it a lot easier. Um, the problem with all those companies is with those where all the dot cameras have closed up and don't <laughs> any there. But um, uh, but we have you know so so we actually have clients coast to coast, but most of them are in you know most of them are in the high tech areas like Texas and Atlanta and California. You know. Um, and are there other ways you characterize your customers? Other particular industries. You mentioned IT and biotech today. Yeah. Um, you know, are there other verticals that you look at? Yeah, I mean, telecom is pretty big for us. Yeah. And um, aerospace. Yeah. And I would say, you know, if there's some like high tech element to it, mm -hmm. that's a good area for us because generally, again, to get somebody that's looking to do their, you know, to, to, to you know, uh, have their legal services delivered in such a way. There's got to be some progressive element really for the company. Um, it's going to take some time before it's really mainstream. Mm -hmm. 
and we're, you know, even though we grow at a, a pretty quick rate, we know that the industries that, you know, adopt this type of thing faster are going to be ones where there's either high-tech individuals or departments involved. Okay. Can I just give you an idea of the scope of your kind of work? Well, you know, one interesting way to, to um, give you an idea of the ability to leverage the technology gives us, in traditional practice, I know that a, an, a lawyer can manage, uh, let's say, a few hundred, maybe a thousand cases at, at a time if they really, really have some great management skills. But it's probably more like 400 cases, and they could probably open up 100 new ones a year. You know, that would be massive. I know that because I was in the practice. You know, with our lawyers using the technology, they can open between 2,500 and 3,000 cases new a year, and they can manage tens of thousands. Yeah, yeah. So, so we are clearly the fastest growing provider. In I would say, like in the in, in, in probably in the history, you know, today we are, and um, we're probably among the top five, uh, pro you know, providers in terms of volume in the U.S. And the other ones, the top, let's say, thirty are immigration law firms that are, you know, dozens of years old. You know, and the top five are probably all over thirty, forty years old. And forgive me if I'm making an assumption, but I've also got to believe that they're not a lot of ladies. They have to have many more lawyers oh, yeah. to process these things yeah. as opposed to the technology that you're right. able to leverage. You, you enable the lawyers, you do have to do a lot more. Right. Which I assume that's what I want to talk about. Yeah, I mean, I can tell you that, that um, uh, again, you know, the numbers, the, the, with, with five lawyers in our technology, you can easily do the work of 75. You know, or a hundred lawyers. Okay. Okay. Now, you know, Guy Kawasaki from Garage.com. Uh, he is uh, uh, one of our shareholders, and he says, you know, that you really to, to be innovative, you really got to jump the curve. You know, not being twice as good or three times as good, you got to jump the curve by twenty. Mm -hmm. And he said. You know, these are one of those companies that jumped the curve by 20. Yeah, he said that it may be pure, you know, conference or something, you know, maybe pure something over here. Well, now, why the number of immigrants that we let in the tens of thousands, maybe earlier hundreds of thousands, which means relative to the size of our workforce, it's not that large. How important are these people for whom you are? Processing their innovation. Uh, well, in terms of corporations, employment base, it is very, it is very high. You know, it might not be high for overall because you've got a lot of family-based applications. You've got a lot of visitors, you know, that come in. But when you talk about employment base, mm -hmm. you know, you're you're going to go way over fifty percent of those are going to be, you know, in some kind of of uh, um, higher education background of all of the employment-based applications, you know, are going to be, are going to be higher, you know, education uh, uh, backgrounds required. In other words, there are 
there, there's about a million, let's say roughly a million new immigrants a year. Okay, but that's not visitors. That's another treatment. Okay, these are, these are people that that gain permanent residence. 140,000 of those are employment based. The rest are family based. Okay, now out of 140,000, you're probably looking at 80% of those have a bachelor's degree. The higher. Okay. So for that, now those are the those are the applications that are going to be made by the corporation. It's very important, you know. But overall, you're right. You know, and, you know the the uh, the immigration. It doesn't matter high tech or not, you know. And now there's issues coming up, you know, regarding uh, uh, some type of track uh, for permanent residence for low skilled or no skilled, you know, and that's going to be millions, you know. Oh. Um, now, you probably know eQuery.com, mm -hmm. leadership, has a lot of small business entrepreneurs and engineers. How can a small tech company leverage visas for immigration to their benefit? Um, well, visas, I mean, it sounds like two questions, actually. I can tell you how you can leverage visas. You know, as far as foreign workers, I think it's it's more of a, you know, cart before the horse. I I don't know of any company that would say I'd rather have, you know, foreign workers, you know, because they help in this way. I think it's a matter of, you know, I don't, I, you know, if this is who came to the interview, and it's because there's, you know, there's a need that American the American workforce doesn't fill completely, you know, which is, an interesting part of the immigration debate. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that that's you know generally what happens. I think the visa application can be used as a retention tool, though. You know, I think that a company that wants to offer that extra benefit to the foreign national, you know, first of all, they have to start with the temporary visa, but could offer them immigration, you know, and, uh, you know, immigration status by offering them an application. And during that process, they're really not going anywhere. You know, they're going to transition from an H-1B to a green card. Exactly. Right. As a retention tool. Yeah. Okay. Well, now you alluded to the general picture. Looking at the big picture, as baby boomers retire, mm -hmm. we're going to have fewer and fewer workers. We're going to need foreign workers to come here and work for us. Given what's happening in immigration right now. Can, should that, will that happen? You mean the ability to get the, you know, the will foreign workers in place? For workers, we're going to need in the next 10, 20, 30 years. Not today. We don't have enough, you know. But, the, you know, what I've seen over the past 20 years is that, that you know, it's, in, in it's happened since the temporary work visa was first offered. There's reviews, you know, and they're reviewing it again probably in the next month to determine should they increase the cap, you know, there's always a cap to these things. Should they increase the cap and let more foreign workers in, you know, or did they leave did they leave it the same? Now, <laughs> as baby boomers retire, there's actually a lot they, they talk about that in terms of a lot of different positions, you know, being needed to be filled. For instance, um, the need for uh, home and general health care givers, you know, is going to increase as the, you know, and uh, those traditionally, you know, uh, that traditionally is an area that a lot of, a lot of foreign workers uh, take. 
And today we've got over a half a million uh, vacancies in nursing, you know, today. And without adequate response from the uh, immigration regulations. So, um, so I think it's an ongoing review, you know, ongoing administrative and congressional review. And, um, um, yeah, I would say today there's not enough. There is going to have to be. I think that Congress today has to raise that H-1B test today. They're going to have to do it, you know, keep looking at it and probably do it more in the future. Um, and see, you know, there was a point in time where they thought it was going to go out of control at the end of the 90s, 2000, people were clamoring for more H-1Bs because of the high-tech boom. They went ahead and, and increased that cap to find out almost the, just the next year that they didn't need them because the, the bubble had burst and, and everyone was, the market had changed, the labor, labor market had changed dramatically. Yeah. I assume that you see these immigration policies in other countries. Any idea how our visa immigration policy compares with those of other countries? Yeah, it, it um, goes back to that outbound that I was talking about earlier, too. The regulations that govern immigration in the United States is more extensive than the IRS regs. Okay, now, that's because it's an issue here. No matter what is going on in a global economy, the general feeling has been, and we hope it will remain, that there's always more opportunity in the United States. In that way, there'll always be immigration. No matter what's going on, there'll always be more immigration in the United States. So that creates a problem um, uh, for the United States. And some people say if it wasn't for the immigration laws, by next Monday, there'd be 20 million Chinese nationals, you know, in, in California. You know, however, I think that's kind of an old thing because things are a lot better, you know, a lot, you know, different in China now in terms of standard living. But um, anyway, that's the, um, uh, you know, that's the, the type of thing that, that really drives that. So um, I would say, in conversely now, in other countries, it's not really an issue. So they don't have to worry so much about strenuous, complicated immigration laws. In other words, if you want to go <coughs> to China, you can go, you know, tomorrow with your photo, the application fee, $20, your passport, fill out one page, take it to the consulate, don't have the visa ready for you the next day, because there's no real threat of you immigrating there, okay, that they perceive. The other way around is completely different. If you're a Chinese going to the Shanghai Council trying to come into the U.S., the first thing they think about is that you're trying to immigrate. So they have to try and limit that. So the only countries that use lawyers at all to handle immigration are the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. The U.K. and Canada, on a much, I think, less frequent basis, the U.S., you know, is uh, pretty much stands alone in terms of requiring a you know legal assistance mm -hmm. to navigate through those ranks. Yeah, exactly. It's like getting a driver's license. You just make the application. Mm -hmm. You know, you can still work from it. I know that a lot of Europe is concerned about immigration coming in. And they have administrators moving into those kinds of things in the morning? Yeah, I mean, from what, 
From what I understand, I, I, one of the things that, you know, we review is, again, U.S. people are going to work, you know, in Europe's got a different, there's a little different situation now, especially because of the EU, you know, in the way that works. But um, there is a little bit more of a threat. And there are threats from, you know, Turkey coming, you know, Turkish coming into, you know, Germany and things like that. So, yes, they look at it, but it, it, I've never heard of, you know, a Turkish individual hiring a lawyer to get... A, any application through in Germany. And generally, it doesn't happen in Canada. It's very straightforward. They use a point system. You have the points or you don't. If you have the points, you make the application. And you wait. And the points are based on you have a bachelor's degree, you have a master's degree, you get points for everything. You get a job, you have a, you know, a spouse, you get, you know. Take Kennedy actually tried to promote that idea once here to make it much more simple. Um, but anyway, uh, so, but people do use them in Canada, you know, once in a while. Um, but it's not as, as difficult a um, process as it is here. Or I should, you know, I should say it in reverse. It's much easier to screw it up here, you know, so people won't have luck here. So, what countries are sending over the most H1B visas? Uh, we see it's it's mostly Chinese, China and India. Yeah, I mean, China, India, Pakistan are probably the you know the highest concentration of the um, you know H-1B applications because they have the education in those countries and and the desire to move you know, in this direction. Okay. And can you give us an idea of the magnitude? Of how much things have slowed down. The Jordan Bench and 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 the Jordan Pre, uh, you know, uh, uh, 2000 to 65,000. They increased that cap to 195,000, and then that sunset three years later, and it's been back to 65. Now, um, every year there's about a quarter of a million renewals that are made. Now that stays, that has stayed pretty steady. It's gone up a little bit over the years. The interesting thing is that in since 2003, that cap has been met earlier and earlier in the year. So we see that it's being squeezed and there's a need, you know, for an increased number. In 2000, what happens is they offer the new application numbers in October. That's the beginning of the government fiscal year. In October, let's say this October 2006 will be for the 2007 numbers. Okay? Now, because of a section of the regulations, you can actually make that application six months earlier, so the applications are coming in April 1st. This year, they met the entire cap within seven weeks. They started April 1st, and seven weeks later, they were all gone. Okay, now, that is in, that's in Memorial Day. Oh, yeah, they were gone, whatever it was, the third week in May, the third week in May. They were gone, and it was like May 24th or something, or, you know, and... 10,000 a week? 
you see, by April, we're already stacking up some new ones for April. Okay? Now, by the time that April 1st hits, you probably have from the gone, you know, by, by April 1st. So, they really have to increase that number. Now, I saw a piece in the, uh, uh, in one of the papers this morning that uh, IBM and Microsoft got together and they're asking Congress to increase that cap before the end of the year, which will be in the next few weeks. So it is so um, the need for high skilled workers, if the H one B meaning the job requires a bachelor's degree or higher and the candidate has that uh, requisite uh, educational experience has been increasing. So um. Uh, well, the big one is eligibility, you know, and, and uh, uh, the question is, and sometimes there's a question because somebody finds a candidate they think is fantastic, you know, and they said this person's perfect, they've had, they've been the last four years, they've been at this company doing exactly what we need them to do, however, they don't have a bachelor's degree, you know. So and they say, how exactly do you define eligibility? Is it a education? Yeah. Employment experience? Uh, are there any other family of personal things? It's a good question. Yeah, it's a good question because it is an indication of what we care about, both of what we really think is important to have here. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, but each category, whether it's an H or a K or an L, you know, has different uh, standards of eligibility. For the H-1B, I mean, we talk about H-1B is like that's the only temporary don't forget, this category is up to uh, V now, you know. So, and there's three, four in each category. So there's 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 a lot of them. Yes, in each in each letter, yeah, subcategory thing. Um, but for the H1B, that's the the one that the um, uh, people are most interested in. Those are the ones that are used the most at the corporations. It requires it, that the job has a, you know, uh, requires a bachelor's degree and the person has a bachelor's degree in that area. Um, and so if they don't have it, you know, they've got to look for another way to do it. And that's some of the art of the legal service is actually to see if there's another way to, um, to uh, get a visa for that applicant. So eligibility is one of them, you know. Timing is another big problem that everybody has because a lot of people, you know, that come out of college you know, in the U.S., the foreign national, having gone to college, and then now they're going to have to get their job and go to the H-1B. A lot of people don't understand, you can't let that visa run out. Um, you have to, you have to be careful about making that application when you're making it. Because people might come to us and say, oh, I found this great student, and uh, I want them to work for me, and I want them to start on Monday, you know. Well, it's not so simple because you have to make a brand new application only under certain circumstances can we start right away. So you might say, oh, I can get this approved. But I can't get it approved for another three months. You know, well, unless you want to pay more and then maybe it's going to be two weeks. No, I need them today. And so time is another one. You know, that's another problem that people have. So we try, you know, for those things, it's one of the things that we try to do is facilitate as much information as possible. You know, not to rely on maybe that one phone call you've got from lawyer, but actually that's the kind of stuff that we push constantly. We're constantly sending out flash pages, you know, look, you know, on timing issues. We send them out every week, you know, 
different issues of timing. Watch out for this. Holidays are coming up. Who's traveling? You know, we keep pushing that kind of information so people know that's one of the benefits of the online. And we can reach thousands of people in minutes. Something happens, you know, in the you know in the you know on, on Capitol Hill. We can let people know, and you know, we can reach again, you know, ten thousand people in seconds. Yeah, okay. Um, so I think I also got you offer a guarantee of being able to process that application. Is that regardless of the employee background, or what kind of guarantee can you offer? Yeah, well, it's, 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 I say generally, yeah. We guarantee everything, you know. Mm -hmm. um, however. You know, the, right now we have to. I mean, because we've got lawyers that are providing legal services, we have to reserve the right to um, not make an application if you don't think it's meritorious. You know, so it's not going to be a refund issue. We're going to tell people up front: don't give us any money. We can't make this application. Okay, but assuming we get started, we look at it, we you know, we take someone's fee. We're gonna we're going to guarantee that fee a hundred percent. And I don't see that actually anywhere done in the legal profession, you know, let me just say in the immigration. And um I actually think that that's um uh something that's pretty newsworthy. But one of the reasons that we could do it is because, you know, we've had you know, our success rate is so high, you know, we know that um uh, we have a process that supports applications that are, are, are uh, you know, fully completed and, and uh, you know, I'd say prove eligibility in a way better than you can do it on a traditional basis. Mm -hmm. yeah. okay. um, now, let's say you process the need before a client. Is there anything they can do to lose it? How often does that happen? Not very often. I, you mean like revoked? Yes. Yeah. So, you mean, yeah, I mean, the, if, if there's information that the Immigration Service gets that impacts on the eligibility, like they determine that they weren't eligible to begin with, or there's some fraud or something, they can revoke the visa, but it's very rare. I, you know, I don't think I've ever seen that here, if somebody gets revoked. I mean, maybe in my whole career I've seen it, you know, once, but, you know, and it was because of that. So it really doesn't happen too much. Now, now someone can become deportable, and that's something different. And that is, let's say they commit a crime, you know, something like that. Now, there's grounds for in the regulations for deportation. In other words, forget the visa they're kicking you out, no matter what your status is. It's <coughs> because you've committed a crime. Um, that happens. You know, that can happen. And we don't, uh, you know, so that doesn't even the application process. So. I think among the general population, there's the impression that there is an immigration crackdown going on. Mm -hmm. Is that the case? Do you see ramifications for that? Yeah, I might say, like, what crackdown, but, I mean, I, I know that... Excuse me, what kind of crackdown? I, I, that's what I said, yeah, like, what crackdown, you know, but, but, um, I do know that it has been in the news this year. I don't know if it was a response to those marches in the early part of the year, you know, for benefits. But I remember, like, in April, they arrested, like, you know, took it into custody, like, 1,200 people. It sounded like a lot of people, but there's 12 million that are illegal in the United States, undocumented. So, 
it's not much of a crackdown. And, and so if your question is, <coughs> are they, you know, making some headway on the, the war against, you know, undocumented, uh, that's just not the case. Um, now, after 9-11, my understanding is, did you become tougher to get education of people? In the school I attended, some reverse would get virtually impacted by that. Yeah. And have you seen those effects since then, at least in the educational sector as well? Well, yeah, and don't forget, you know, in January following 9-11, there was that whole embarrassment on the immigration service part where they issued these are the two of the pilots. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so um, those were done on a certain type of vocational visa called M1. I think that I heard that they just weren't doing it at all anymore. <laughs> but for the universities, it definitely, I think, became tougher. And um, but it's always been tough. I mean, there's 500, at any given time, there's roughly 500,000 foreign national attending universities and colleges in the U.S. Even before 9-11, I saw how tough it was for people to come in. People that had scholarships at Harvard, you know, um, were getting, you know, would get denied. If there was an idea that they might be intending to immigrate, you know. So there was already a pretty strict limitation from certain areas of the world. Uh, um, now, after 9-11, I think that they really, um, again, closed the doors even tighter on other areas of the world. And there's always the, like, the seven countries, you know, the, the scary countries that they talk about, which are submitted, you know, like Syria and Jordan and Iraq and, and uh, I'm not going to be able to name them all, but, but um, uh, the ones that are, you know, I'm sure also falling to the axis of evil countries and things like that, you know. So um, uh, I know that the Department of State, you know, got a lot more restrictive when people came from those areas. And uh, so, yeah, there was an impact on it. Professors, I don't know. I mean, I, they, they ranked pretty high, you know, when I was talking about, like, what we really wanted to come into the U.S., so outstanding researchers, researchers and professors actually have a very easy time, you know, coming in. I'd say but for them coming from these um, seven countries, they're probably not impacted at all. That's the first time seven years. Yeah. Um, now does he now handle anything else beyond uh, visa yeah, those are part of the questions we get. Like, we don't, we don't have that type of service, mm -hmm. but we have a lot of direction on, you know, the website, and then we have a lot of direction that we can give when those questions come up on how to obtain those, those documents. Mm -hmm. So that is one of the things that, you know, is, is a, a, you know, an added service that, that we don't really promote, but it comes with the territory. Mm -hmm. Now, the thing that you're doing is helping foreigners work here, which in my mind creates a corollary to outsourcing. Mm -hmm. In other words, we're hiring people from other places. Right. By getting the visa they're working for here by outsourcing, they're working elsewhere. Um, do you make that comparison? Is it valid? And how do you see that comparison? 
Well, one of the things I've you know learned along the way in business is you don't outsource a core competency. You know, there's two things. I'd say that's one of them. You know, and and people are not going to you know if they're developers, they're not going to outsource the development. You know, if their development is ancillary to you know you know uh, uh, you know being in the real estate business, you know, well then you know maybe it wouldn't be so critical. Um, I would also say the other thing that impacts on that is that outsourcing is still relatively new. You know, outsourcing, right? you know, as a as a uh, uh, strategy. You know, I think that we'll see it more and more. I still think that people will come to the U.S. for a couple of reasons. There still will be need. There'll be need in, in management always, and there'll be desire. You know, for people to come and find work. So, um, yeah, I don't, yeah. one thing that kind of bears out that, that outsourcing won't impact on it is just what's happened, you know, to the numbers of immigrants over the years that's going to go up. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess you can extend that a little bit further. Um, supposedly, recently, venture capitalists have required software developers to have an outsourcing component for venture capital, mm-hmm. in other words, to have, you know, a center in India or whatever. If we're saying that there is a corollary between immigration and outsourcing, mm-hmm. should venture capital be linked up to an immigration strategy, just like venture capital is linked to an outsourcing strategy? Yeah, that's interesting. That's really interesting. I, and, you know, I, I got to say that I, I hadn't heard that they, that VCs uh, were requiring that, but that's not a bad idea. I would say not tied to outsourcing, but if you're going to have a hiring strategy requirement, then yes, immigration for sure. It should be tied to hiring. I mean, if they're going to go, I mean, if we're talking strictly, you know, in the, the context of your question, you know, if a VC requires it, you know, should we add on immigration? I'd say if they go as far as requiring a hiring strategy, then yes, you know. <laughs> now, with a lot of companies, one of the things I talked about in the beginning, I said that four things, one of them is strategy. Mm-hmm. One of the things we help companies with is generally their immigration policy. You know, so assuming that, you know, you've got a company that knows full well that immigration is a part of their daily life, you know, they'll be looking to create an overall policy, you know. And so we actually have, have helped you know, a lot of companies with that and have a lot, have drafted a lot of different policies. So, what kind of companies have those kinds of policies? Is it strictly the big guys? You know, IBM, Intel, Yeah, I'd say, you know, anybody who's going to have, you know, a, a um, you know, let's say significantly, it could be over 25 people, but it's going to have, you know, at least five, you know, they, they want, and they say, okay, look, everybody's asking us for a green card. What are we going to do about it? That's a policy, you know. So the more people they have, just like anything in a bigger corporation, the more they're going to try and document, like, the, those practices and things like that. So um, I'd say that, you know, the companies that do over 100 applications, we start to see if they don't have a policy, they welcome the suggestion. And uh, we help them, you know, with that. Um, can we get into a couple other things that maybe beyond what these announcements, but you may be familiar because they're in the same general area. 
I assume you're familiar with the Secure Border Initiative. Oh, yeah, a little bit. Not much, but, uh, okay. yeah. And what impact that <coughs> has, will it work, won't it work, um, things to watch out for. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, they, so they finally, um, I think they gave it to Boeing their job, the FBI net. I'm, I'm very interested to see how they're going to make the borders more secure using technology. I mean, it's, it's really kind of without implanting chips, you know, that kind of business. And even then, I don't know how they're going to do it. Um, it it's real speculative, you know, to talk about this. You know, I, over the weekend, I, I was watching a local program and one of the local aldermen, uh, Latino aldermen, said, show me, it was really funny, actually, but show me a uh, 50 foot wall and I'll show you a 52 foot ladder. And I, and I agree with this. And I've been saying this about the wall for, you know, a couple of years now. When they first brought it up, I thought it really wasn't a solution to the problem because if you've got a motivated, you know, border jumper, they're going to get here. They're going to dig under. They're going to, you know, make the, the, the wall a thousand feet high. They'll dig underneath it, you know. So I think the, the real solution is a long-term macroeconomic solution where you have to increase the standard of living on one side of the border. You have to create opportunity on one side of the border so it doesn't exist so much. I mean, just, you know, there's not a great balance. And that's why people come across. We have the need. There, there's no opportunity like there is in the United States. You know, there's, there, the education isn't the same. The, you know, the... the um, uh, you know, the opportunity isn't there, so they're going to come. Um, so as far as this initiative is concerned, I don't know. I still, I think it's one of those things where <coughs> it's like, you know, they say that the, 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 uh, um, those agents at the airport aren't really doing anything to protect us. It just makes us feel better, you know. So um, I don't know, you know, but I'll, I, I'm a person who loves technology. And I'm excited to see what, like, James Bond techniques they come up with to, to make it more secure. Um, but, you know, they could, you know, they could minimize the, um, the, uh, the problem, you know, people coming over. I mean, you know, they were talking about some uh, technology that would identify people in a 20-mile stretch and so the agents can get to them faster. So if that works, you know, that'd be fine. But this really doesn't solve the the problem. It's one of those things that takes care of the system. How many economies are people in the No, we see we don't. I mean, we advise people on U.S. passports. We don't do we don't handle that at all. Mm -hmm. So I don't I don't think so really. I mean, but what really will affect our business is what's behind this increased anxiety in terms of travel documents. Mm -hmm. The more people are anxious about it, the more people seek legal assistance in making the application. Mm -hmm. You know, so that will have an impact. I think that will have a long-term impact on it because, you know, everybody, um, 
you know, wonders when the immigration laws become more strict, does that impact on the immigration lawyer's business? I think it always increases it because people feel like they need lawyers more. Yeah. Okay. Um, now, in the other direction, I know if Americans are looking for visas to other places, the Department of State pretty much discourages visa facilitators. Yeah. Granted, your business is different than you're in the right. opposite direction. Yeah. So do you have any thoughts on other visa facilitators in the other direction? Yeah, you know what? That's the outbound that I was talking about. Those are visa facilitators. I think they're okay. I mean, I, you know, I, I think that it's... Oh, I think the Department of State discourages them because people end up complaining, I didn't get the right visa, and here I am stuck, and they're trying to send me back from Italy, and whatever it is. And so I think the Department of State is one of those, you know, cautionary uh, 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 communications says, do it yourself. Don't use it as a facilitator, um, but I'm not sure if I'm right about that. You know, I think that's what it was. Um, but do they have value? Sure, they have value because you you know you can go to the consulate or you know the the kid that works for the facilitator will come by here on his bicycle and pick up your passport and there's sixty bucks and take it there and you know, you know so I mean it makes it easier you know and uh, they'll do those things. But you can do it yourself. I mean, they don't. Other than, other than you know, the, the delivery part of it, they I don't see them adding any value because you still have to fill out the application, mm-hmm. which is you know, which is good. Okay. Um, now, what happens by moving a lot of your processes to the internet? Essentially, what you're doing is automating a lot of functions, which says that a lot of the functions you perform are very similar repetition. Are there security issues in moving the legal processes that you're here? Yeah. Well, what, you know, what we're really about is changing the way that legal services are delivered, you know. And what we automate are all the non-legal services. There's still a lawyer that's, you know, analyzing and uh, applying uh, facts to law, you know, and... Um, and when that happens, that communication, which is probably the only thing that might be sensitive, security sensitive, goes into a secured account. So we use, you know, um, uh, a secured site and server and accounts, you know, to um, to handle those communications. As far as the documents, that's all done behind the security wall. Um, but if you're asking generally, I would say that it depends really on what's being done. If somebody opens up a website, which they've done like, a, you know, a, something like an INS Zoom, and they sell uh, form packets, mm-hmm. no, as long as, as you sell a generic form packet and there's no real legal analysis being done to give you that particular form packet, mm-hmm. then there's no need for security. Really. Exactly. All right. As long as you can write it, you know, generically, and you're not giving anyone, you know, what's considered legal advice by applying their facts to a certain set of a certain set of facts to certain regulations, then that's not legal advice and doesn't really need to be secured. So it depends on what people are doing, because 
legal services, you know, it's got a, it's got a pretty broad reach, you know, people call it all kinds of things, and, and um, I'm of the belief that if you give, you know, somebody a form, <coughs> not really a legal service, but if you say, I know that this is the form you need because I know the regs, then it becomes a legal service. So it just depends on what the process is you're really automating online. But for us, we have everything to do. And I guess the other side of that is, you know, again, if you're automating something that's routine, you can pull out a lot of costs and so on. However, I've got to believe that to a certain degree, every application is different. So what are the legal trade-offs of working with a highly automated Internet system versus the individual um, attention that you get by not working with that one? Okay, that's something that's your question. <laughs> no, I'm kidding because, you know, one of the things that we say is that we have much more value than a traditional practice. And I'll tell you a couple things about, you know, how, you know, we came to um, develop the way we describe it because uh, there was a study done a few years ago by uh, Ernst and & Young and they determined that 97% of the immigration application was non-legal. 97% was non-legal. Okay, that means there's a very small percentage, you know, that requires the review of the attorney. The rest of it can be automated. So, what do we lose? Putting the, exactly, get, getting it in the right forms, getting, you know, getting the, the data into the right form fields, that's not legal, you know, really. Um, but the strategy of the application, that would be the legal part, very small percentage. Mm -hmm. um, <coughs> so, again, you know, while immigration was a really good candidate uh, for, uh, for online. So, what's the trade-off? The trade-off would be that, like you said, that you don't get that individual care online. Okay, but we figured out a way to actually give you more. You know, so for us, we not only use the internet to automate the non-legal, we use it to facilitate the legal. So people are getting, for example, we can respond to a question in minutes. Okay, so at the end of the day, rather than playing phone tag for hours, or let's say you know, playing phone tag for you know, for over an hour, you know, during the the um, uh, uh, business hours, central business hours, our average response time is somewhere between 5 and 10 minutes, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, go 24-7, our average response time is about 30 minutes. 24-7, Saturday, Sundays, 2 in the morning, okay, that's our average response time. You can't get that type of a service in a traditional practice. Now, we see that somebody asks a question, there's certain things that tip us off it's time to get on the phone. Okay? So that's the best that the, you know, the traditional practice is going to do. They're not driving over there and even, and would that even help? So, no trade-offs, I'd say. In fact, what we've done is increase the service level, you know, I, I'd say pretty significantly because in addition to those lawyers, they're answering all the time, answering through the weekend, and getting on the phone when they see that somebody needs a phone call, not in doing it proactively, not waiting for somebody to call them. They see a question that comes up two times. That's one of our triggers to make a phone call. We see some capital letters, 
the trigger, you know, to make a phone call. You see somebody asking a strategy question that their employer should be talking about, you make a phone call, you know, those are all things. And there's a, there's a number of things, too. In addition to that, we have, as any business would, customer support, customer service, account management. Lots of stuff that, you know. So what we try to do is make, you know, make the entire experience, and that's really the mission here, is to improve the entire experience overall. And, and I didn't mean to pose it as a trick question. I was kidding. Well, yeah. I, just, I didn't mean to say, you know, did you beat your wife today? Right. Next question. You've alluded to this a couple times. You know, immigration lends itself well to the Internet. Are there other manual legal processes that lend themselves the same way that immigration does? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, we do, we do. And, you know, I, I think that until the states all have some kind of a uniform state laws, you know, like there's certain laws that are federal, certain laws that are state, certain areas, I should say. Mm -hmm. <laughs> For instance, real estate is a state law area. Mm -hmm. Immigration is a federal law practice area. For the ones that are federal, yes, you know. And um, for the ones that are state, no, because... If I ran, you know, a, a legal service online that was state law, I'd have to have a lawyer from every, at least one from every state, you know, so it's really cumbersome. Someday they'll be in some state laws. I don't know when it's going to be. Security laws? Securities could be one. Um, I don't think that's necessarily great, uh, but you could do a lot of the filing work and you could do a lot of the blue sky work online. I think you could, but... I think right now, you know, the SEC lawyers, the securities lawyers are, you know, at the big firms, those are the more conservative types. I don't know that that would be the first to go, but where I see it going is the other employment law areas, ERISA, OSHA, federal employment law. Those kind of compliance areas, they're perfect, you know, I think. Yeah, so. um, I think so. Yeah, I think so. Um, I anything that becomes, you know, in, in, and I just don't know enough about uh, stock chat, luckily. <laughs> um, but anything that becomes, you know, the repetitive type of information, or again, moving data, moving moving uh, documents, sure. it's, it's really, you know, it's all through this. Forgive me for jumping around. But are there any intellectual property issues in, or risks in getting visas before? In other words, correlated with outsourcing risk. Mm -hmm. People worry about losing their intellectual property if they outsource to a certain mm -hmm. destination. Yeah. Are there the same risks if you bring that worker here to work for this? I think that would be something that would support doing it in-house rather than sending it out, you know, because you can control them. But, you know, I mean, you've got to, you're, you're in some, you know, way, you're talking about the um, criminal or fraudulent um, activity of an individual, you know. So that exists whether it's a foreign national or a U.S. worker. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's an additional risk. Mm -hmm. okay. you know, well, which you alluded to earlier, but you specifically stated earlier, um, you know, grounds for remitting it or the 
Look on your website, you didn't look like you had any foreign partners. Kind of surprised me because yeah. I thought they would be good prospects for you. Saying yeah. This foreign company that may be employing people here in the States. Well, uh, I mean, we have a lot of clients that are foreign companies, mm-hmm. you know. Um, in terms of, again, the sales channels, CD, mm-hmm. uh, we're, you know, we're open. We're, you know, we're still open. I mean, you're not going to see them on the, on the website. We have, you know, uh, some sales channels that, um, you know, would help us meet foreign companies that are the branch in the United States that are doing applications in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, yeah, uh, as far as partners, um, I haven't, you know, really come across one that would, would you know, gain us any traction by having it on the, on the website. Okay. And so, you have foreign clients, um, they are hiring you to get visas for foreign workers coming up here. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I guess, you know, I am jumping around. But don't have, you know, these foreign clients, they have to have a presence in the United States. They, they have to have, either they have a branch or they're opening one up, something like that. These foreign clients. Um, again, getting back to a current issue, I just have my passport with this. And I know that they are now issuing e-passports. Yeah. I'm curious, do you see those with the foreign people that you're... No, I, I, yeah. Because I know a couple other countries throughout the world have the RFID embedded in the passport. Yeah. Well, we don't really have to um, get, we get copies of the passports and we get them, you know, uh, sent to us electronically. So we don't really see the the hard passports. Um, But I I heard the same thing. I heard that we're now issuing the RFIDs. I filed my application after they said they were issuing a new passport, but I didn't get a new e-passport. And after I got them, I asked them why. They said there was only one processing facility yeah. where they are processing passports, and not everybody gets them. Yeah, that's what they... And I guess what concerns me is now it's going to be another 10 years right. until I get a new one. Right. So, so how much help is that going to be? Although it's, there's kind of a debate on whether there's... Um, a real, uh, you know, if it if it really makes us more secure to have these anyway, or is it just an invasion of our privacy? Well, then, there's because there's 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 to the RFIDs and a smart chip, or smart card, whatever it was called. <coughs> and, um, but they can also track where that passport is. That, that is a privacy thing, you know. That's true. You know. Um, I guess just to touch upon a couple of personal things uh, and cultural things, are there any cultural differences that impact what you do? You know, you see folks that you're bringing over here and they're locally based in Florida. Um, well, sure, there's cultural differences. Yeah, I mean, do they impact your business, what you do? Uh, maybe in an indirect way. You know, I, I would say, the, see, the, the application is, is a lot, the, the whole process is, um, you know, creates a lot of anxiety 
for the beneficiary. Because if they don't get this thing approved, their life changes. You know, so there's a lot of anxiety tied to this. And I think a lot of times the employer doesn't fully understand that. You know, so we could have a pleasant dialogue with the employer who's, you know, happy to, you know, work with us and turn around and he's got a candidate that's at the, you know, like, end of the road. Yeah. And, um, uh, and because of that, I think that that, um, you know, can create difficulty for us, you know, having, I, I don't know, just we have to, we have to gauge both of them at all times, you know, and so, and, and, but is it a cultural difference? I don't know. It just might be like a de facto difference because one's a beneficiary and one, you know, one isn't going to be kicked out of their home tomorrow if the application doesn't go, you know. Um, as far as cultural differences go, I would say it's communication issues, you know. Um, that's, that's always it. And, and uh, uh, that could create the same kind of disparity in the way we're working with the client and the way that we're, um, uh, you know, working with the candidate. But I don't think it presents uh, something that we haven't been able to overcome. You know, I mean, again, we're about a lot of communication. You know, and we're constantly feeding communication back and forth between the candidate and the uh, employee. So, in, in the employer, uh, I'm sorry, the the employer and the candidate. And so, um, in a lot of ways, I think we make it easier because the employer can actually look and see the dialogue between us and the candidate. They can ask their own questions, and so I think that we actually can help the phone say those differences. Um, and I'm not sure if you have a perspective on this, but I'd like to ask anyway, how well do you think American companies facilitate or assimilate these foreign workers into their workforces here in the States? That's a great question. Um, you know what? Because I've seen this now for a long time now, and I would say, you know, this will be my, you know, first time taking a shot at this, you know, with this opinion. But I don't think they do a great job, you know, assimilating um, foreign workers. What's that? Why don't they do I, you know, what? I don't think it's, I don't think it's like top of list. You know, I think that, um, I think that there's a given. I mean, don't let's let's remember this is, you know, here this is the whole thing is the melting pot. So there's a, I think that there's a given that that it's uh, incumbent upon the foreign national to understand the cultural differences and to compensate for those cultural differences themselves, to assimilate themselves, you know. But um, in the uh, HR departments that I've worked with, I have not seen um, any, you know, any program that would make me think that that's a really outstanding process or even, you know, a really good process. Um, but I think it's I think it's going to become more and more important, you know. Um, yeah, I believe I started at the University of Colorado, Northern Illinois, and also went to school in Switzerland, South Florida, and South Florida. How well do those international experiences prepare you for what you're doing now? Um, the you know the the international experience 
was a big plus. I mean, there were, you know, there's a general feeling that we are, you know, that everything we've done in the past actually prepares us for where we're at right now. Um, so I'd say that the biggest thing was a sensitivity to other cultures, language, and um, uh, and then the sensitivity of actually like being on the other side of it. When I worked overseas in my first job as a lawyer, I worked at the uh, United Nations in Geneva and knew what it was like to be somebody who was foreign and maybe, you know, um, uh, not that welcome, you know, U.S. citizen in Geneva, Switzerland. So, uh, so I gained a sensitivity to that experience. And, and so, <laughs> as a worker, you know, as a as a tourist, dropping money is one thing, but when you're sharing the bus, it's a different experience, you know. So yeah, you know, you 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 have experience yourself, right? Because you're in Germany, you think? yeah. So yeah, you know. Yeah. Right. No, when you have a nice time, you go to nice places, but when you're, you know, trying to, when you're in the laundromat with the, you know, it's a different story. You know, so I gained a sensitivity to that, and I have a, um, you know, I, I have a, uh, um, I'd say, uh, an, something of an empathy, you know, for that experience. It's not an easy one, you know. Did you learn a little bit of the French language living in Geneva? Yeah, I had to. I, well, my, my uh, so, um, we should hopefully say, I, I, it's funny because at the World Health Organization, the United Nations, English is the official language. They don't speak English. They speak French. Yeah, the secretary would not speak English to me. Yeah. Is it French? At Colorado, and I no, I, I, my, my first time in uh, France was uh, was in Strasbourg between my second and third year of law school, and I heard that I was accepted to this symposium. It was a fantastic opportunity. That was really going to kick me off, like, into the international um, uh, practice. And so that January, it was five months before I left, I started reading French books. That <laughs> was the only way to, I mean, I didn't have money to take class. From January to September? Yeah, January to actually like May. And then I arrived and just started speaking it. And now I had studied Spanish in high school because it was, you know, the, uh, I was told it was the easier language to learn. And, um, and I, um, I had studied it in college too. So I had some help with gender issues, you know, like gender language. So those are the same, you know. Table, table, you know, Spanish and French. It's uh, female, so, um, so that made it a little easier. And verb conjugation, you know, you did basic. So, but um, yeah, by the time I was done, I was, I was pretty conversant. And is there anything about language that impacts the language you do here? Uh, I guess you know, to a certain extent, if I'm talking to Somebody, you have you gain an ear, you know. So even if you hear a thick accent, you know, it's easier for you to understand. You know, if you have a, you know, that whatever um, 
sensitivity, uh, you know, to the to the language. Um, but um, as far as language helping me directly here, I think it may as we get into immigration reform and those laws pass and we have more um, we have more of a need to add Spanish. But yeah. That's all I have. Is it? Okay. Good. Thank you very much. Great. How do we do here timeline? Yeah. Oh, not bad. What? I'm late. So okay. Now we have. Uh, Thanks very much. It was fun. Yeah.